Welcome to the 282nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Maya Goldenberg, Tara Haley, Ross Silverman, and Dorit Reese for a roundtable discussion on COVID-19 vaccines and vaccination. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 25th, 2021, there are 3,474,370 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. They're also reporting the number of vaccine doses administered globally to be 1,681,937,874. What those numbers mean, we will have to turn to our panel today for clarification. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to continue that reading now, especially in recognition of the one year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. The headline is Felonis Floyd for my brother, George Floyd. This is what justice feels like. This was written by Felonis Floyd, April 22nd, 2021. and appeared in the Washington Post. This is what justice feels like, gut-wrenching relief, exhaustion. It's not sweet or satisfying. It's necessary, important, maybe even historic. But only with the passage of time will we know if the guilty verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin is the start of something that will truly change America and the experience of Black Americans. For the past two weeks, I've watched my brother George Floyd die over and over, thousands of times. The video testimony was hard to see. Now it is seared into my waking thoughts and my nightly sleep, what little sleep I get. I watched as the strangers who stood on that street and saw George slowly, agonizingly die, testified about how they pleaded for his life and felt guilty that they weren't able to save it, sometimes sobbing through their words. They never thought they'd have to stand there and witness his soul leave his body. That included a nine-year-old girl with the word love on her t-shirt who saw something no child should ever have to see. She will be forever changed by it. Those good people who were there with George at the end when we were not are also now part of our family. I saw tears on the faces of jurors who looked nothing like George or me as they listened to that testimony, and I felt bonds of humanity with them. In contrast to the jury that 66 years ago refused to convict the men who brutalized, maimed, and killed Emmett Till, this jury took a decisive stand for justice. As much as this verdict is vindication for George, it is for Emmett too. Over the past 11 months, my family has forged relationships with the families of so many other victims of brutality and over-policing. Brianna Taylor, Dante Wright, Eric Garner, 
We are members of a tragic club that we would never have chosen for ourselves. Many of these victims have not had their day in court. This verdict is for them too. Our family has absorbed love of people from all over the world, from Germany, Britain, Australia, Ghana, France, and so many other places who felt a connection to George and were devastated by what happened to him. They put their lives on the line, marching amid a pandemic, and told us they hoped we would get justice. In death, as in life, George brought people together, leading to unlikely bonds. So many Black people have shared with us how traumatized they were by George's death, reminding them that it could have been them or their children. And so many white people have shared that their eyes were opened by his death, that they didn't realize until now just how often people of color are brutalized, their lives trivialized, their right to justice denied. The video had a lot to do with it. People were horrified to literally see someone tortured to death for nine minutes, and they were shocked that the officer displayed no remorse. People around the world had to explain that to their kids, and they didn't know how. We saw law enforcement officers such as Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Arredondo break ranks and call out Chauvin's behavior for what it was, and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison press for a vigorous prosecution. A crumbling of the blue wall and the start of a new era of law enforcement accountability? We hope and pray. This verdict is historic, but it shouldn't be historic to punish people who do bad things, even if they wear a police uniform, especially if they wear a police uniform. My brother told us a long time ago that his name would be all over the world. We didn't think it would be like this. This week, our family received a measure of justice because regular citizens and those in authority took the most basic human action. They did the right thing. It's up to all of us to build on this moment. We must end the qualified immunity that too often shields law enforcement officers from responsibility, require police to maintain body camera and dash cam videos, and ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Now it's time for the U.S. Senate to do its part and pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and begin the work of transforming policing in the United States. What does justice feel like? It feels like maybe we can finally take a breath. The headline was Felonis Floyd. For my brother, George Floyd, this is what justice feels like and appeared April 22nd of this year in the Washington Post. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. This is one that, um, I don't know, using the phrase looking forward to always seems strange to me in pandemic times, but I've really been looking forward to bringing these experts together for this discussion about vaccines and vaccination. You've seen them on COVID calls before, and let me introduce them to you again. Dorit Rubenstein-Reese is a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Increasingly, her research and activities are focused on legal issues related to vaccines, including exemption laws and tort liability related to non-vaccination. She's published law review and peer-reviewed articles and many blog posts on legal issues related to vaccines. Frosty Silverman, JD MPH, is Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Indiana University Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health and Professor of Public Health and Law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. In Indianapolis. He serves as a member of the COVID-19 Vaccine Allocation Advisory Committee for the Indiana State Health Department. And he is also an associate editor for the journal Public Health Reports, the official journal of the U.S. Surgeon General and the U.S. Public Health Service. 
Aya Goldenberg is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Guelph in Canada. She works in philosophy of medicine and has a new book on vaccine hesitancy coming out. Oh, I think it may be out. We'll have to ask her about that. It comes out this year, titled Vaccine Hesitancy, Public Trust, Expertise, and the War on Science, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. And my fourth guest, Tara Haley, is a freelance science journalist and photojournalist who serves as the AHCJ core topic leader for medical studies. She particularly specializes in reporting on vaccines, pediatrics, maternal health, obesity, nutrition, mental health, and medical research in general. And she regularly speaks on vaccine hesitancy. Her work has appeared in Elemental, Scientific American, New York Times, Forbes, Politico, Slate, Nova, Wired, and Science. And she writes and covers medical conferences regularly for Medscape and MD Edge. Tara, Maya, Dorit, and Ross, thanks for coming back to COVID Calls. It's great to be here. Thank you, Scott. I'm looking forward to this. Great people here. Why don't we make a uh, just a, a trip uh, around the table just to find out um, where you are now and how things are looking there? We'll use that as a as a way into our discussion, and maybe you can tell us what the vaccination situation is looking like where you are. Uh, Maya, let me start with you. Okay, you're finding me in Toronto, the biggest city in Canada, and uh, one of the worst places for uh, for COVID cases. However, we've had a big shift. Uh, a month ago, we were at uh, about you know, over 4,000 cases in our province, a province of 14 million. Um, and uh, things were things were looking pretty bad. But since then, there's been well, uh, uh, there's been a, a huge increase in vaccination. We started slow, at least compared to the U.S., where we thought we would be somehow on pace with vaccination. We started a bit slower, um, but things have picked up and uh, we are now at uh, last I checked, we are now at um, almost almost 50 per, 45 percent of Canadians uh, 18 and up have received one dose of the vaccine. That's so I think that shift we're seeing where things are finally getting better and we're actually looking forward to a good summer uh, has a lot to do with vaccination. And just to follow up quickly there, um, would you s describe vaccination as on demand where you are? I mean, is it something you can schedule and get done whenever you want it? Um, it, it is, uh, it's uh, on demand. There have been little points along the way where there's been excitement and it's hard to get it. Uh, and I should say it's not entirely available to everyone. We've got uh, hot spots that have, even though they need it more, they have trouble accessing it. But there have been some efforts to do things like pop-up clinics and bring it to workplaces and uh, really uh, target those areas that have a lot of cases and a lot of risk. Tara, let me bring you into the conversation. Same question to start. Sorry, having trouble unmuting it there. I am in Texas. Uh, let's see, our governor recently made it illegal, probably illegally made it illegal, um, to require masks at any governmental um, entities, including counties, cities, public health authorities, government officials. In other words, if you work in the public health department, you're not allowed to require the public health employees in the public health department wear masks. Um, and that goes for schools as well, starting June 4th, although some schools have been told that they have to already start early. So I am not in a good mental place because I have children and, and a, a vulnerable member of our family who will 
have to somehow figure out a way to attend school next year with schools literally being not allowed to require a basic uh, health, you know, health preventive um, that is perfectly acceptable and would prevent all of the unvaccinated kids from transmitting. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. Our cases are looking pretty good here. Um, and that's good. I'm glad for that. I am holding my breath, I guess, for that, because we also, he li- uh, our governor lifted the mask mandate for the whole state on March 2nd, and it's Texas, which means March 2nd is when the most beautiful part of the year occurs. So everybody goes outside. So I, I wonder whether our cases will start to increase once the real severe Texas heat sets in and everybody sort of migrates back inside with air conditioning. I don't know. I hope not, but that's that's my concern right now. But I'm, I'm primarily just frustrated with the fact that um, the governor has taken control away from local municipalities and deciding how they want to you know, handle public health guidelines. I think that's a little frustrating. Now, Tara and I can speak deep Texan, but having both being Texans and actually having attended the same high school. Um, but um, I, I just wanted to follow up on one part of that, Tara. Is there's just no pushback at all from the from the local level, and none of that has gone to court. The people just have said, Governor Abbott, you can unmask us and tell us, you know, what to do. It's I, er, the last time he tried to do this. Austin and Houston pushed back. Dallas pushed back a little bit. I haven't kept up with it closely because honestly, I, I I was so disgusted that I sort of like did a moratorium online for a bit. I was just yeah. even after the CDC guidelines came out, I, I avoided Twitter for a couple of days because I was very frustrated with the, the, the I, I, what I perceived was that the CDC took a public health issue and turned it into an individual health issue. And the worst thing you can do in public health is make it individual health because it's public health. Um, and you know his mandate came within a day or two after that. So there's no question in my mind that he was influenced by that. That was that was free reign to say, okay, now it's all over. The pandemic's done. We're going back to normal life now. And, and Texas has kind of already been there. Whether places are pushing back, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people are tired. They've been pushing back. And for those who aren't familiar with how Texas politics work, which is most people, the governor does not actually have the power to do what he did. Um, it's not in our constitution. It's not legal. But all of the courts are appointed by him. The legislature is in his pocket. So, I mean, it, even if someone were to contest it, it can't go beyond the state level and anybody in the state level is going to find in his favor. So we're sort of stuck. So. Okay. Uh, we may return to this. I know we'll return to this <laughs> issue of vaccine politics in a minute, but thank you for that dispatch from Texas. Dorit, let me bring you into the conversation. So I'm in California. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area where it's sunny and chilly, as is uh, not unusual in the Bay Area. Uh, The pandemic, we've had a rough pandemic. It's looking better. Um, Cases are down, deaths are down, positive testing rate is down. We're still not completely out of the woods, but things are improving. Vaccine rates are reasonably high um, in California. Uh, not not the, the highest or anything, but uh, reasonably high uh, with about 40% of the adult population. If, I think it's higher for the adult population because the numbers are out of the entire population, uh, fully vaccinated and vaccinations are, are continuing. We still have a mask mandate. Uh, the governor said it might expire mid-June. Uh, we still have some other restrictions as well. My children are going to school with masks. And how are things looking on campus there in terms of return to class? The University of 
uh, right now the plan is to open in person. We'll still be offering some online case uh, classes for students that have specific issues, but we're planning to open in person with uh, everybody ready to move online quickly if we need to. Um, the University of California is going to mandate vaccines uh, once at least one vaccine has full FDA licensure with medical and religious exemptions, but with potential uh, non-pharmaceutical measures for people who are exempt. So that's where we are. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll return to that exemption issue. And I imagine you're getting calls every day from your university administrators wanting to know where they stand on that point. So let's hold on to that and return to that in a minute. Ross, good to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us and uh, with this discussion. Same question to you about where you are and how it looks. So I'm in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, so uh, we are in a pretty good place with regard to the current state of COVID spread in the state. It's largely, we are largely in a yellow uh, uh, kind of uh, status. Uh, Sunday was the first day in um, six weeks uh, where no uh, COVID deaths were reported in the state. Uh, so that's, again, a very positive step. We really um, started very uh, strongly with regard to our vaccine distribution um, we now have passed 5 million shots distributed in the state, which is, uh, which is pretty good. Uh, but we are in, uh, as far as ranking for percentage of the population vaccinated, we are actually in the bottom 10 in the country. Uh, it really has tapered off after uh, a, a, a pretty strong opening. Um, especially as we got into sort of the middle-aged populations and lower. Um, and there are, continue to be significant uh, vaccine uptake disparities with minority uh, minoritized populations in our state compared with uh, the white non-Hispanic uh, populations here. Uh, on a positive note, the big news of the past week was that uh, my institution that I work at in my alma mater, Indiana University, um, decided this past week that for fall 2021, they are going to require uh, vaccination for all students, staff, and faculty uh, on their uh, nine campuses around the state um, with some fairly severe consequences, including dismissal um, for those who do not receive an exemption and refuse uh, to adhere to the policy guidelines. Um, this has become uh, an interesting discussion point over the last couple of days here that's been taking up a good portion of my time, but uh, I believe we are the first state school in a quote unquote red state uh, to make this kind of a, take this kind of a step you may recall during the last election, we were uh, the first state called in the election on election night. It is a supermajority uh, Republican state. Um, and so uh, given all the other news that has been going on on public health measures uh, recently uh, in the state, this was uh, some welcome news as far as supporting uh, evidence-based best practices. Thank you.
Oh, well, thank you for that, Ross. I, I, people who are watching COVID calls or listening may not be aware. I, there's, a, there's a chat that's available to guests. Um, and sometimes it comes into play and sometimes it doesn't. Usually it's around technical issues. But with this group, there's a chat that's already started to emerge as we're, as we're talking. And at Ross, as you were giving your opening discussion, Maya said, can they do that? Um, and, and so let's just, let's just follow that lead. To, um, can universities do what Indiana University has said they're going to do, Ross, particularly at this phase of understanding what the vaccines do? Uh, yes. So the short answer is yes, they can. Um, the longer answer is, you know, Indiana, actually, this has been part of the discussion. Uh, the legislature stated that neither the state uh, nor local units of the state may uh, have uh, implement or require a uh, vaccine passport. And even in spite of that language under Indiana law, yes, universities are permitted to put these steps in place. Uh, the fact that it has uh, the emergency use authorization um, makes it uh, an, a, an approved vaccine, uh, an authorized vaccine as far as the, uh, the state is concerned. And uh, if that's what is necessary in order to protect the health and safety of the population on the campus, um, the the campus uh, a campus is permitted to do that. Let me open this to others who may want to take this on. Dorit, let me bring you in. Mm -hmm. So I, what I want to add to what Ross says is we have a long history of university vaccine mandates going back as to the early 20th century at least. Uh, this isn't a new issue. As you correctly said, uh, raised Maya, the question of this EUA statute is makes it a little more complicated. But we have a long history of university vaccine mandates, uh, even historically, and the new Supreme Court may raise some questions about that, university vaccine mandate did not have to include the religious exemption. At least since the American with Disability Act, they probably do have to provide accommodations to students who cannot be safely vaccinated to provide the medical exemption. Now, about the UA statute, um, my view is, so first of all, this is the first vaccine that's been authorized under an EUA for the entire population. This has never been tested in court. There are three cases now, at least three. There are probably more, but at least three. Uh, but so this is a new question in terms of litigation. The reason it's a little unclear is the EUA statute says, among other things, that the Secretary of State has to inform recipients that they can accept or refuse the product. And some interpreters to mean there's no, you can't mandate it. The counter to that is uh, that the law doesn't really speak to universities, employers, or others. So there's a question, can we assume that by silence, this law is changing existing law to such an extreme degree to prohibit universities, employers, and others from doing something they've been allowed to do for decades? I think a court is likely to find that no, but it has not yet been tested. Hmm. Uh, Tara or Maya, either one of you want to follow up on, on this particular aspect of the sort of mandate issue? Well, I've noticed my university, uh, for starters, and the Canadian universities tend to work as a group uh, like this, maybe because they're all public uh, universities, um, have been silent on, on that 
And it leads me to believe, but I'm only speculating here, that they are not going to require vaccines, but they are going to incentivize it to a degree that most people will go for it. So it'll be, you don't have to vaccinate, but uh, you want to sit in a lecture hall? Yes, you must. If you want to live in residence, we already have uh, requirements. If you want to live in re residence, then we have uh, vaccine requirements uh, or dorms, I, I think uh, you might call them. Uh, if you want to do, you know, pretty much any social thing, you're going to have to do it. And and my guess is most people will will go for it. Um, however, what that doesn't what what those kinds of incentives um I think where we might stop is where it would actually compromise someone's access to education. Of course, you can live not to learn. You can choose not to live in a dorm. You've always got to or something like that. With us, it might actually be vaccinate or masking because we don't have the same kind of um, large scale objection to to masks. So it could be you can choose much like we have with healthcare workers in Canada during influenza season vaccinate or mass. So there's always the or something, but that doesn't include not being allowed to uh, access your education. Can I ask you something, Maya? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that come to my mind when you talk about that is it's probably a lot easier to enforce a vaccinate or mask uh, in an employment context. Even a large employer would have this many people and everybody in the department will know them than in a university that has tens of thousands of students. Do you think that this would uh, go that, that that this kind of vaccinate or mask requirement can work on a campus? Um, it it probably can if you tie it to things like you need to reveal your status or do some kind of statement or you won't be let's say be able to uh, register for classes or things like that. So they'll they'll tie it uh, to something else. I I actually expect the same thing to happen with with you know societal vaccine passports or whatever version we get it'll be like you must do these things or you can't renew your driver's license so that's i i that's how i expect they're going to deal with it um texas there there are a couple private universities that are requiring vaccination very small ones like st edwards in in austin i believe that um, A&M and UT were going to uh, but our governor ensured that that did not happen um, once again, I mean, it, it's it's a problem that I'm sure is occurring in multiple different red states where um, governors that are catering to a base that is, continue to minimize the, you know, the threat of the, the pandemic um, or are unwilling to accept what public health measures actually reduce the threat um, or, or they trump personal freedom and, you know, and responsibility over it, which negates the fact that public health is public responsibility. Um, making it impossible. So it's, it's pretty frustrating. In a broad sense, I think that the research shows that there are benefits to requiring vaccines at the employer level when it can be justified, such as when you're, you know, in a healthcare place where the, you know, you, you are actually putting others at risk if you're not vaccinated uh, in a more serious way than you would in any business, of course. Um, and in schools, I think there's, there's excellent um, philosophical and, and research basis for that. I, I think that um, I don't think it's come up yet, but I know that it's been tossed around whether or not states will start requiring vaccines for schools, for example. I think that one gets a little bit dicier. Um, you know, laws like the ones in California and Oregon, for example, um, the research is mixed on the extent to which it helps rates because often it gets... Um, you know, there's there's medical exemptions that get misused. And, and, and California recently passed a law to try and adjust that. And this is talking more about childhood vaccines, but I think it'll translate over to the COVID vaccine as well. So I think it'll be interesting to see that play out. And it's, it's a little bit 
when you force someone to do something, you increase resistance to it than if you gave carrots. So I'm, I'm more in favor of carrots than sticks, uh, primarily because that's what the research shows is more effective. But I think that in places like healthcare centers and schools, it makes sense to require uh, vaccines, especially during a pandemic. Unfortunately, again, the Texas governor disagrees. Um, I'm sure among other red governors, I'm sure. I, I don't know. I haven't been following other states, but it's, it's just frustrating. I, I wonder if I could get, get the international vantage point on, on this, if anybody knows that in countries that tend to have um, less hesitancy or a higher vaccination uptake rate that they don't mandate because it's just not just not necessary. I mean, Maya, you were talking about the use of an incentive in a situation where there may be a sort of greater sort of underlying, and it's hard because you get into essentialism here real quick, which is pretty dangerous, but this sort of sense that people on average tend to not reject vaccines, maybe in Canada or in Germany or other places. And so you don't need to have that sort of legal structure of a mandate. I don't know. Is anybody sort of aware of what that looks like in other countries? Um, so it, it really varies. We have some evidence that of what you're describing. For example, there are, Sweden has very high vaccination rates. The question of mandates came up in the legislature and the consensus in the legislature at that time was our rates are high enough without us. With, without this, we don't need it. In response to the large measles outbreak in uh, France and uh, in Europe, uh, France and Italy both impose a mandate uh, under the assumption that it will help them increase their vaccine rates. Uh, Germany actually has a pretty substantial anti-vaccine current. Um, so they, 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 they have, they do have that problem as well. And they had measles as a result of it. They had tens of children dying from SSPE, which is pretty rare. Um, not in recent years though. Uh, so there's some of that, but there's a lot of other things that go into the question of whether you, you mandate a vaccine that aren't directly about what are your levels of hesitancy and what are your rates of vaccination, including kind of a rough guess of how it will work in your country, uh, often a rough guess because as we, I think it's kind of the catch-22 of public health policy. When you're in, put, pulling in a new policy, uh, you don't have data on how it will work when you start with. You may have data on how it worked elsewhere, but there's a lot of differences. So what data we have somewhat suggests that countries tend to experiment with mandates when there's when hesitancy leads to disease outbreak, anyone can challenge me on that, but it's messy. Let me just expand the conversation a little bit to the vaccine passport issue. And Ross, I'm going to ask you first about this. Um, you know, what should we, what are you seeing? What should we be expecting in terms of um, countries demanding passport of visitors coming from other places or demanding that their own um, populations have some sort of a passport before they leave the country and, and go abroad. What are the trends there? Well, uh, we are seeing a, a good amount of discussion, especially now in Europe. Uh, again, we, we have to recognize, you know, I think um, uh, the World Health Organization just said uh, today, I believe, you know, that 75% of all vaccinations have taken place in 10 countries. Um, that so we have to recognize there's a massive disparity insofar as access to vaccination is concerned. Um, so when we look at places like, for example, uh, the European Union, 
Um, they are now in the process of, of, of ramping up their um, vaccine passport system in order to facilitate largely, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call it, you know, basically U.S. Uh, travel and, and inter, you know, uh, inter-country travel within uh, the, uh, the countries that are already well on their way uh, to, to having high vaccination rates. Um, I think you'll, you'll see a, a desire from uh, businesses, from places like uh, airlines, things along those lines, uh, to, to be able to demonstrate uh, proof of protection in order to minimize the, the amount of sort of individualized policing that, they, that all those entities will have to do on their own. Uh, so, um, it, I, you know, I think the debate is coming uh, in the United States as far as a national vaccine passport is concerned. The Biden administration has consistently resisted uh, entering into that type of a discussion. Um, and, you know, and I do think that that is going to lead to there being much more sort of state by state and local experimentation as far as these policies are concerned. So, well, let me just ask if anybody else wants to add on to that. I mean, I have so many different follow-ups, in, including like how you would even police something. I mean, if it happens at the border, I guess I can kind of envision that. But once you get beyond that, I had a guest on last week who was talking about some issues in Australia, and she pointed out that the uh, one of the things they had to deal with was the sort of mandatory quarantine. People just weren't doing it. They're just walking out of quarantine. It's like, well, what are we going to do? I mean, do we uh, do we send police to their house? We're gonna, I mean, you you have these ideas of a mandate or a system you want to put into place, which will designate, you know, what behavior is acceptable and what isn't. But then enforcement's a whole nother, a whole nother matter there. They have done that in some places. I mean, in Singapore, you can't walk out of quarantine. Good luck with it. <laughs> um, and I think that's similar in is it Taiwan? I, I'm trying to. I, I don't want to misspeak, but um, and I know that there was this. There was. Um, uh, what was it? A couple months ago, there was a young girl, a young woman who was she went to one of the Caribbean islands and I can't remember which one, St. Thomas, maybe. And she was supposed to be in quarantine and they they gave her a I think it was either a bracelet or an ankle bracelet that um, she violated it and they tracked her down and charged her. So, I, I mean, that can be done. But I I think you're right that that's not going to happen in places like Australia. It's probably the more authoritarian esque kind of places or islands that are smaller that are going to do that. But I mean. It is possible, or they just don't let you. I mean, they don't let you out of the airport. I guess maybe the they set up. I mean, I guess logistically they'd have to set up quarantine before customs, and that's logistically just not feasible. Um, I'll give you in Canada. You have to if you can fly into Canada, you have to fly into one of the designated airports, and you have to spend three days at a hotel at your expense, which is the time they need to test you, clear you, and then you go and self-quarantine wherever you want to be. That can be with a family member or, or something like that. And that's uh, 14 days on top of that. And sure enough, many people are choosing to walk out of that hotel. Uh, they will get followed and get a, a $3,000 fine, but some people say it's worth it. So in terms of actually what it is doing, this kind of uh, enforcement that is in effect, it's not being followed through. It's certainly not keeping people with COVID from spreading it to the population. What it's just doing is adding another barrier to keep people from coming 
to flying into Canada. And that has some kind of effect because you don't want the hotel or you don't want $3,000 or something like that. All the while, when we talk about all these systems in place to police people with passports or travel, we are dealing with such a small part of the population, the privileged few that are vaccinated, first of all, or maybe not, uh, and have the means to travel, whether to Canada or to, or, or to Europe. Meanwhile, we've got this pandemic crisis here where most of the world can't even access vaccines. It seems to me like a lot of effort and resources going into letting the privileged enjoy more privilege when really we need to be bringing everyone else along. I think one of the things that really bothers me with this discussion is we're using vaccine passport to cover so many really, really different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're mentioning international travel, as Ross did. Uh, that's really different from saying if you're within, and, and you're correctly saying for international travel and uh, we really have an equity problem because we have large parts of the world that can't access the vaccine. That's really different from saying the people inside the country, do we let them into businesses or not, which is also covered by the same terminology, but is a completely different issues with different questions, because then it's less of a, it's still, those are still access issues, but they're different and probably less from the fact that three quarters of the world haven't been given meaningful access to the vaccine. That That's actually where I think, um, I I don't have a personal issue with uh, international vaccine passports precisely because it is a privileged issue. And if you're privileged enough to do those, then I, I think right now, at least, if you're going to be going into another place, you do have a responsibility not to bring COVID with you if you're in a place where you're privileged enough to be doing international travel. That's I don't know what the bioethical rules are there. That's just kind of my own personal opinion. When it comes to domestic passports, I previously had a lot of uneasiness about that because I didn't know how they would be used or enforced or set up. When the CDC made their recent change, you know, saying that uh, if you are vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask in public places, that complete. I did a 180. I changed completely. I immediately wanted the federal government to come up with guidelines for states. I, it probably needs to be handled at the state issue at the state level. Although I hate saying that, being in a red state, but um, that there need you know that the federal government at least requiring states to set up something. Uh, the state can choose to do it how they want because the situation that we now have, I'm in Texas. We were just, we, we just took a vacation um, out to a ranch in East Texas and we went to a ranch because animals don't have COVID and we knew that we could safely pet the donkeys and the mini horses. Um, and we did have to do one grocery run and I was the one who went in because there's a member of our family who's immune compromised, who takes a medication that's immune suppressing. And that person is vaccinated, but we don't know how well they're protected. And now we're in a situation where I felt safe taking my children to Target three weeks ago to get new shoes because all of us were wearing masks and everyone else was wearing masks. I now do not feel safe taking my children to Target because even if they're masked, that doesn't protect them as well as other people being masked. They can't be vaccinated. They could bring that home to the other individual who's immune compromised. So my life is less safe right now as a result of the CDC's change. And the CDC didn't take into account, for example, J&J &J vaccination and whether it stops transmission. We know it, we know the transmission data is very good for mRNA vaccines. We know nothing about it for J&J, &J, except that a bunch of Yankees got it and it doesn't work very well. So, um, And so I think not having those guidelines set up for a passport, let's say that there's a business, a family owned business that wants to be able to say, you can only come in unmasked if you don't have, if you're vaccinated, 
there's no mechanism for them to do that. And they're going to be forced to face abuse as a result of it from people who either are vaccinated and don't want to have to wear a mask or people who claim they quote unquote identify as vaccinated, which is a new, very offensive way of uh, anti-vaccine advocates, you know, killing two birds with one stone in terms of being very offensive about transgender identity and non-vaccination. I mean, you know, all these issues that weren't an issue. I mean, I'm really kind of ranting about the CDC here, I realize, because I don't think it was well thought out. But um, I, I think that there's a huge population that's been left behind in those guidelines and it intersects with vaccination because it intersects with access issues and the presumption that everybody who wants to get vaccinated has now been able to get vaccinated. That's certainly not true outside the United States, but it's not true within the United States either. There are loads of people who are low wage workers and can't get off work or can't are afraid they'll get sick for two days and can't afford to lose two days worth of wages or live in a rural area that doesn't have public transit and they don't have their own transportation or um, the nearest place to go is an unsafe place for, for who they are as a person. Or, I, I mean, I could go on forever. There's loads of access issues that aren't being addressed. Um, and so in a way, I feel like the vaccine passport could help that, uh, well, that huge problem the CDC caused. Sorry, it's hard for me not to rant about the CDC, so I'll stop. <laughs> if, if, if you don't mind, I just, just uh, building on that just a little bit, it also... One of the things that I think the CDC's action, uh, recent action, also um, is a symptom of is we haven't had a larger conversation in the United States um, uh, about what it's going to mean when we can say that the epidemic is over. You know, we're not a, a population, we're not a, a society, for example, you know, New Zealand and, and Australia may take a zero COVID uh, approach to their policies. We haven't had any kind of broad uh, community-wide discussion about, you know, what's it going to mean to have COVID continuing to sort of flow through at low levels in our society? Who's going to be left, you know, at risk? Who, you know, what we're going to do to protect those populations. And I feel like the the CDC's move to assure the vaccinated that they are free and safe, you know, the whole column being green of all the activities they can do um, in an effort to get that good news out. Uh, I think it really has surfaced this larger question about like, well, what does this mean as far as what the next several months are going to look like, what the next couple of years are going to look like with this being endemic. And who's left behind in the midst of all of that. I think there's a lot of, you know, the I, again, bringing it to a personal level, I have kids that are too young to be vaccinated. I'm in a state where the governor won't let schools mask kids. I'm unlikely to have a, a virtual option. What do I do in the fall when the vaccine's not available for two months I have an individual who could die despite being vaccinated. I'm not the only one in this situation. There's millions of us across the country in this situation. Can I shift the conversation a little bit? I, I really appreciated Ross's comment about uh, how we haven't had this sort of community-wide discussions about what the sort of endemic version of, of COVID is gonna look like. We think we're going there. We had been promised herd immunity at some point, but that seems unlikely. I thought that that conversation needed to happen as soon as they started talking about children 
because that was never part of the discussion about vaccinating children, uh, especially given that there was so much information and misinformation. Even where I live, where at least in comparison, there's the um, uh, the sort of uh, science of COVID is less politicized. If there's one area that Canadians can't seem to agree on. It's whether kids get COVID or not. And it all has school closures, should kids wear masks, that kind of thing. Um, so it, so now that we're suddenly very quickly uh, opening up uh, uh, vaccines to 12-year-olds and just testing now, or I think the testing is done on six and up, parents aren't ready for this. We didn't have a conversation. We, we At least at some point, people were probably thinking about vaccinating all the adults and then the children will be all right because they're not seriously harmed by COVID. And now suddenly we're saying the kids need to be vaccinated because you know there's a, there's a few theories about why, possibly because the endemic uh, um, virus is going to be, get pushed onto the unvaccinated children. And we're, I don't think we're ready for this because we haven't agreed on where children fit into this uh, program. Just to follow up quickly on that, Maya, when you say you don't think we're we're ready yet, it's because your research indicates that vaccine hesitancy tends to locate around that kind of issue, like parents being more cautious about children. And so there's just a longer lead time of conversation that's sort of traditionally required before parents endorse something like that. Or are you talking about some other dynamics in society that have been provoked by COVID? Uh, I, was I was referring to the uniqueness of, of the COVID situation. It was mm -hmm. framed as an adult disease. And even keeping children away from school was largely, or, or online instead of in school, was framed as protecting adults. And of course, some parents resented that children suffered because of that. Um, there's still disagreement about how serious it is for, for children. So because of that, it is not as obvious why you want to be campaigning to vaccinate children, or I should say not obvious to everyone. Uh, and then as if that isn't enough, there's also the worrying that people have around children. Uh, we don't have, we certainly don't have long-term data on COVID vaccines, how could we, for adults. But the younger you are, the more long-term we need to think about. So it's not surprising that the questions that we still don't know about, you know, will it affect, what's the long-term consequence? Will it affect fertility? Uh, we are more concerned about that for our younger population, especially a population that has not been hit as hard by COVID as a disease. I, just to add on to that, there's there has been a lot of, there hasn't been a single issue related to kids and COVID that people have agreed on. At all. Yeah. Now, you could say that about COVID in general, but it's even more true about children, even among people who agree on other things. Mm -hmm. um, you still have highly respected pediatric um, experts and researchers on Twitter arguing back and forth across the pond over whether, um, you know, th this is a dangerous disease for kids or not. And layer on top of that, you have the racial and ethnic disparities where in the United States, um, you know, children of color, whether they be Latino or they be, um, you know, black children have a higher risk of catching COVID, a higher risk of being hospitalized with COVID, a higher risk of comorbidities underlying increased risk of COVID, a higher risk of multi-system inflammatory disease of children, and a higher risk of long-term effects from that. And you have a lot, I, I was very frustrated over the whole past year seeing the discussions about school because what you saw over and over was a bunch of white privileged people who thought they were allies saying, we need to get the black and brown kids in school because it's hurting them. And you had a bunch of black and brown parents saying, I don't want my kid in school. I fear COVID more and they're doing okay at home. 
And just that disconnect alone has been damaging. It, it's been, I mean, you have people who should be banding together, fighting each other. Um, and then you get to, you know, again, there's the immune compromised kids. There's the kids who live in areas that don't have the resources for the schools to safely open. Like there are many schools that could safely open and did safely open very early on. You have other schools that, you know, in New York City, for example, many of the schools absolutely cannot open, even if they wanted to, because they just don't have the resources to put it in. So basically kids have been pawns by many different people. And the research has never been uh, definitive enough for us to really hang our hat on. And that's that's been a problem from the start. And I think that all plays into the whole question of, is this disease serious enough for kids to vaccinate them? I mean, I'll be honest, I'll vaccinate my kids as soon as they're ready, but I'm vaccinating them more for their father than I am for them. Not because I don't worry about them, but because I know they're not nearly as high risk as their father is. So, you know, it, it, you know, it's some of it is about the adults. Um, it's, you know, it's I, I, my, everything Maya said was spot on. And it's just it's such a big interconnected issue that hasn't been given good faith attention. I don't think like there's been people who have been arguing about it, but there haven't been many people really being sit, willing to sit down, look at the research, take into account the, the limitations of that research and have a good faith discussion on what all of this means. Let me just, uh, Dorit, let me just see if there's anything we've been talking about here that you wanted to to add to. Please I do. agree with, um, I, I think uh, Maya and Tara are completely right. The only thing I'd add to Tara's point about we're vaccinating children for the adult is to remind everybody that we have tens of thousands of children who lost parents during COVID. So when we're vaccinating children for the adult, we're not just vaccinating them for the adults themselves. Uh, it's not exactly good for a child to be left without the parents. Uh, I, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, yesterday I had uh, Emily Smith Greenaway and Rachel Kidman on part of a research team with Rachel Margolis and Ashton Verdery, who've been looking at bereavement. And it's just that. And, and, and as a person who didn't study public health um, intently um, before the pandemic, the way I have in the, since it started, I, it's really been impressive to me how important you know, the public health messaging is is really, I was going to say Titanic, but I want to reach for a better metaphor. But I mean, I mean, it's a juggernaut and it's moving at a particular pace. And so if you're having a discussion, a national discussion among experts and they're saying, yeah, children can't get this, you don't just turn it around. And then and, and that was one of the points that they've made. And one of the reasons they started their research to talk about the, what they call an, uh, a bereavement multiplier effect that you might say children are not impacted, but let's just lay aside whether or not they're getting COVID and what that might mean to them. But let's just talk about the mental health stress of uh, losing a parent or losing a grandparent. So that goes well beyond, I mean, instead it brings in another layer, I think as Dorit's suggesting about the vaccination um, issue here as, as well. Children being affected is a much more complicated matter than saying children will, a child will get COVID-19 and die. I think that's, that's the point. Let me just remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Maya Goldenberg, Dorit Reese, Ross Silverman, and Tara Haley about vaccines and vaccination today. 
there's another area we need to get to, and that has to do, Maya, you um, glanced, uh, you had a glancing blow at this a minute ago, and I want to give you um, first pass at this question. It's really about just sort of um, the differential vaccination rates around the world. And, you know, hearing people talk about the vaccine passport, you know, I'm in South Korea now, and South Korea is a place that managed infection control as well as any better than almost anywhere else in the world, particularly given its its size, um, given its its place in the world. It's it's not an island. Uh, they managed vaccine. They managed infection control very well. And I turn on the news and I see uh, the governor of Ohio giving away full ride scholarships to try to get people to come on down to the auditorium and get their vaccine. And then I hear this discussion about the vaccine passport, that people are saying, not only will I refuse to be vaccinated, even though I can walk to the CBS and get it, I would also refuse. So they're like telling me a thing they would not even do had they been vaccinated. And I finally, I just, I had, it just was too much. You know, there's only about 11%, I think, of the population here in South Korea has had one dose at this point. And so the way it's playing, I just want to say, Americans, the way it's playing outside the U.S. is not looking good. But it's also sort of gets to this deeper conversation we need to have about why does South Korea not have vaccine yet? And beyond a wealthy country like South Korea, why are the numbers so incredibly low in other parts of Asia and sub-Saharan Africa? So that's a big lead up. I know you can't take it all at once, but Maya, I mean, maybe we start with a simple question. Why the differential? Well, um, to start, I'm going to start with the very obvious claim that public health interventions actually help and they work. So when they are done well, things like um, social distancing, masking, uh, various times of lockdowns, they work. It is a way to curb infection, uh, the transmission of infections. And we've seen countries that have very low budgets. Uh, Thailand was an example, uh, Vietnam, um, uh, parts of, uh, let, let's see, New Zealand was an example too, where if you actually control the movement of the population, um, you can actually, you can actually uh, take care of this, uh, if this outbreak. And all our past pandemics have been examples of that. They were all flu pandemics, I, I believe, but uh, they were examples of using uh, population, controlling population movement in order to take care of it. So it can be done. You don't need vaccines to get yourself out of it. But what we found during this pandemic is the is the uh, technical fix was the preferred one. So the countries with the most resources to put in place the kind of public health measures that would work. I'm thinking UK, they, they I think prior to the pandemic, they were one of the top global preparedness countries in the world and they failed miserably. US has tons of resources, also failed. Canada could have, also largely unsuccessful. And the, the idea was they put their, their hopes in the vaccine and if you can get it, you can, you can, uh, you can win this, uh, this uh, unbelievable uh, fight. Other countries, of course, don't have the resources and don't have the ability to um, uh, adjust population movement and they can't afford the vaccine. So what do we do now? Well, given that it's a pandemic, we need everyone in on this. We need to curb infection everywhere. So we can't just leave India to deal with it, with its uh, problem right now. We're also seeing that endemic uh, COVID is not coming as easily as we thought. India is another example of that, where they had early exposure to the virus, yet the second wave is, is, is tearing through the country. So um, 
the answer now would be the more resourced countries should be sharing their vaccination supplies with the rest of the world. It's for uh, it's for Western interests and it is for everybody's interest. Yet we are getting stopped up against these kind of old debates around intellectual property and the need to um, keep uh, keep research viable. Otherwise, we won't get the next vaccine. And that strikes me as a very a very um, um, poor argument. Uh, I think Pfizer would do fine even if they gave up their intellectual property rights today. They've done fine already. Their profits are through the roof. Um, and I'm surprised that we are having as much resistance during a pandemic of getting, um, getting, uh, waiving these intellectual property rights. There's a, the further thing about uh, manufacturing com- capacity. There are uh, companies in the world that have offered to manufacture these vaccines at very low cost, and they are not, they are getting refused because the big uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies want to hold on to the intellectual property and the manufacturing capacity. And that is nothing short of outrageous, selfish, and inappropriate. So, I just, sorry. No, go ahead, Dori. Go ahead, and I want to. I agree with Maya that we need intellect sharing of intellectual property. I just want to point out that that's not going to be enough because we also need sharing of uh, the actual information about the technology and additional things. So I agree that we need uh, sharing of IP. I, I also would add that we need more than that from the companies. Well, the argument, just just to respond to that, the argument from the uh, companies and from the defenders of intellectual property has been, it's not just the IP, but it is the manufacturing capacity. It's the know-how to do it. But now we are hearing about these companies that say, we have the manufacturing uh, capability and they won't answer our emails or they're not... Mm -hmm taking them up. There's a company in, uh, in India, there's mm-hmm. a there's one in Canada called uh, BioLease, and mm-hmm. uh, they are offering and they are not getting any yeah. update. Yeah, the Serum, India is the, the Serum Institute in India is the largest vaccine manufacturer in the yeah, world. Right. And they're in exactly the situation you just described. No, what I was talking about is they need to give more than the IP, they need to give right. manufacturing details, etc. And then those with manufacturing capacity can do it. Yes. Um, yeah, well, are you, do you mean like the shortage of supplies? Because I know that's like, no, 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 no. Oh, that's so a whole other issue is the, the supply yes. chain with reagents and test tubes and, and all of there that. Four, yeah, there are four or five things we need in place to allow it, uh, manufacturing of vaccine on a global scale. And we need to put them all in place because, mm-hmm. as Maya is saying, this is a global problem mm-hmm. and we need to solve it. And even if you could raise it, as Maya is pointing out, Pfizer did get a profit here. And then, and the other part of this is the companies were heavily supported with government money for going forward. The claim for we took the risk, we should get the benefits is not completely off, but is a lot less when a lot of the risk was government funded. So right. uh, I, I think you're completely right that we need to do that. We just need to make sure that we don't focus just on one part of the picture, which is I, the IP, but we address all of the above. I think I'm agreeing but, with you. Just. But Dori, were you surprised when the Biden administration actually supported the idea of sharing the intellectual property for the vaccines? I Somewhat. I mean, uh, there was a lot of pressure and discussion behind this, uh, but it's. I think it's unprecedented. Ross, correct me if I'm wrong. As far as I know, it's unprecedented uh, to do such a step. Uh, and it's certainly a political, uh, politically hard thing to do. But on the other side is the simple reality that 
so this is the thing that so sometimes come up uh, with vaccine hesitancy. At some point, viruses speak. At some point, the situation speaks. Uh, and, and administrations that is pragmatic and pays attention to reality, at some point you have to react. We can't just stop the pandemic here and, and assume we're safe, as Maya said. Ross, let me give you a chance to come in on that. I mean, that's uh, a lot of tensions here, one around intellectual property, but the other I've heard um, is that, well, the United States needs to keep a large stockpile because number one, things were so terrible uh, and we can't go back to where we were. And we finally got our techno fix, as Maya said, so we we're gonna use it. We shouldn't just give it away. And the variants are going to put us in a position where maybe there's going to need we're going to need boosters. We we can't just go giving our vaccine. I'm playing a role here, obviously, but we can't just go giving our vaccine to all of our allies, even though they're calling for it, because we have to still take care of what's happening here in the U.S. I, I guess I'd like your reaction to that, which is a bit of a straw man, but also um, just you know the other parts of this. It's a really bad straw man, actually. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Well, no, and I mean, I think you know the the, the phrase, the technofix phrase, is is apt. Um, just uh, you know, and and I'll make a parallel in another area, which is the, you know, uh, you know, setting up a lottery to give somebody a million dollars in order to boost vaccine uptake. Um, we have, you know, as as Maya was talking about, we we in the United States, this has been like the one win in the COVID. Uh, response effort um and it has been uh while we have watched uh, you know an absolute uh shambles made of our public health system um and this also i think deflects from that larger conversation of needing to have a strong resilient uh public health system in place so that you can uh you, you don't have to rely upon the the fastest uh, development and manufacture of a uh, a, a new uh, technological response in 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 world history in order to actually you know come out on the other, from the other on the other side of the um, of the pandemic. So you know I think that's you know I, I think it, it it keeps things in the discussion less about the needs of our infrastructure uh, to, to continue to focus on the conversation about vaccine supply. Tara, I want to bring you back in on this. There's a sort of a cruel irony here, which you point out in a recent article. You had this, by the way, I should say, I congratulate you on your piece in the Times. I don't know how you get so much writing done, but you do. And I don't either. it was really effective. <laughs> I just thought it was really effective piece in terms of just like your anticipation. It's like, well, here's the question I have. You're like, if you were thinking this, you might want to think about this. It really walked you through very well. Um, so I wanted to make sure I pointed that out. But also you, um, you had another piece where you talk about the vaccines themselves. And I think I uh, speak for myself. I found myself in a in a tight spot sometimes rhetorically because you want to be enthusiastic about technology that saves lives. On the other hand, as Ross is pointing out here, it's like, well, why did we find ourselves in a situation where we needed the technology this quickly that was going to save these lives? It's bind even if we talk about it. And and I think you, you, know, you wrote a piece, um, I think in Elemental, that really talked about your own surprise at sort of describing the success of these vaccines. But you have, a, there's a great 
um, and the speed with which they became successful. But you say, hard as it is to believe, the nine-month development of COVID vaccines jumped through all the same hoops as any other vaccine in terms of assuring their safety and effectiveness. Um, good public health messaging there, Tara. The abnormal aspect of the trials, how quickly scientists gathered data, was a result of our abnormal reality in which a deadly disease was running wild through our population. So it was, if I've got this right, it's only because it got so bad because of a failure of public health intervention that then enabled the techno fix to proceed at the pace that it did. I, I can't, exactly, if you yeah. told me I was going to say that sentence five years ago, I would have been astounded. You know, I mean, but the reality is what a it, finding. You know, five, phase three trials, they you, you can't usually predict how long they'll take because it, it's all dependent on how many people get infected with the disease. You have to have enough people in the control group get infected that you can then compare it to the infections in the group that got the vaccine and then compare them. And you you have to have enough people to reach what's called statistical significance. It's a, it's a biostatistical concept in which you basically, you have to make sure it wasn't due to chance, right? Um, and it's often very difficult. You know, a lot of times vaccines will be tested in uh, places, like for example, if let's say that we were going to have a new measles vaccine come out right now, it would be very challenging to test it because we'd have to look for, we'd have to wait for a measles outbreak and then test it in that country with the measles outbreak. And then there'd be questions about uh, ethics. Is it ethical to not give a potential vaccine, you know, when we have a working vaccine? And in this situation, the fact that we had the disease just running rampant everywhere in the country, I mean, it took no time at all to get enough infections in the control group. And it would have taken much longer if we had controlled it better. And I, the irony of that, I don't even know what to make of it, honestly, because part of me is frustrated that I, I have a separate frustration related to that, which is the idea that Americans, and, and, and this isn't true just to Americans, it's, it's true of Westerners, you know, the, the, the global West in general, but particularly Americans, we look to technology to solve all problems. We look to innovation and invention and technology. Whereas in places like Vietnam and China, and, and China is a very technologically advanced place, but you know they look to communal non-pharmaceutical interventions. Look at Vietnam, how effectively they kept the virus um, low and out of their, their, they don't have the vast resources that we have. They just had a willingness to actually, you know, believe that the virus was real and believe that wearing masks would help and social distancing. And, you know, we could have controlled it a lot more if we had considered the, I guess what it goes back to is places that don't have that access to technology learn to do things other ways. And those ways can be better than the technology. Wouldn't it have been better for us to take more time to get the vaccine because so many fewer people were dying and we were actually preventing deaths along the way, as, as opposed to having it a free for all where sure we got the vaccine really quickly, but at the cost of how many lives. It's a, I think people don't really think about that big picture very often. And the fact, you know, you, you see it even with um, the totally unrelated to COVID. Uh, there was an interesting story in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine a number of years ago about a particular way to rehydrate children um, using a, a particular method that I, I don't remember the details now, but it was basically, hey, give them this water to drink as opposed to hook them up to this fancy machine. And giving them this water to drink worked better than hooking them up to this fancy machine. And it was like, maybe we should learn something from the developing country that doesn't have access to this machine. I, I think we often look too often to technology to solve our problems and don't consider that we have our intellectual and behavioral resources to work with. 
have a few minutes left. Um, thank you all for that. My guests have agreed to stay on a couple of minutes more. So we'll kind of have kind of a lightning round of topics here that um, I just want to get and in sort of in the context of where things are going to go from here in terms of um, vaccination and, you know, how these rates might go up or how they might not go up further in, in countries that do have access right now. Maya, you um, gave a recent interview uh, to CBC and you were talking the context around um, ideology, political ideology and vaccine hesitancy. Um, and you're quoted in this piece saying vaccines represent a very close intrusion of government and government policy onto the family unit and onto individual bodies. So any kind of discontent people have around government and institutional structures will get projected onto vaccines. And we see that today. And and so I've been, that's a Canadian perspective, but I wonder if you might broaden that out a little bit. Are we, and this is the, my question, are we at a point now where we could say sort of reliably that um, if a person has a particular political party affiliation, that's going to be a predictor of whether or not they're going to get vaccinated. Um, yes, so we, we are at we are at the point where I should say at least that's how people are answering the surveys. There's so many surveys now asking people, "Do you intend to?" This is prior to it coming, and now that it's here, uh, will you get it or have you gotten it? So people, uh, we should know we should uh, we should couch this around uh, sort of the limits of survey research. People give the answers that they uh, either they think they are supposed to say or they think someone else should hear. So it is the case right now. I think the U.S. is a very stark example of this where uh, Democrats say, yes, I will absolutely uh, vaccinate um, uh, because their uh, sort of progressive values are right now tied with vaccination, uh, while people who are still bemoaning uh, the not having Trump as president say, I absolutely will not because that's been tied with, you know, the vaccines are are tied with pro-Biden and anti-vaccine is tied with, with, with Trump. Now, what they actually do in their own time Time may not match that. So I find it curious that every single uh, Democrat in the U.S. Say it, says they're going to vaccinate because there was a left-leaning vaccine hesitancy that existed prior to COVID. So I can't believe all the sort of natural living, uh, you know, a Whole Foods crowd are suddenly 100% supportive of COVID vaccines. But I'll, I'll put that aside. What we learn from this around uh, ideological, ideological commitments and attitudes towards the vaccines is that's what you want to target if you're trying to um, change people's mind about vaccine. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to, let's say, educate them with um, you know, another fact sheet and another study, you wanna actually try to untangle the values that are right now associated with a certain attitude on vaccines. So using things like, um, people who Republicans admire, getting them to talk about vaccines can go a long way. Um, I recently listened to an episode of This American Life, the podcast, and they had, um, um, a, 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 uh, it was a, um, it was a group that they were trying to convince Republicans to vaccinate. And they had that Fox pollster named, I can't remember his name, Frank, is it Frank Lund? Yeah. Yeah. He was on the show and he was actually very committed to people getting a vaccine. He'd had a health scare and now he's very pro-vaccine. And he wanted to use his influence to try to convince people. And he even had Chris Christie show up to talk to the group 
because he had uh, had a scare around COVID too. And so right there, you get to see someone like Lenz or Christie talking favorably about the COVID vaccine. And suddenly it, it gives space for your, you know, standard Republican Trump supporter to say, I can still be the person I am and get vaccinated. It is not the case that vaccination is somehow destroying of my identity. So that's do how we, you do it. Do we have evidence, though, from previous, um, you know, bouts of anti-vaccination or vaccine, vaccine hesitancy that that works? So if you at have least, a, yeah. Yeah. At least in the clinical setting, there's been um, work on, it's called cultural cognition. There's a group at Yale uh, led by Dan Kahan that's done these interventions where they've talked about, let's say, um, I think they did one on HPV vaccine and they just brought in sort of experts that would sort of lean more to that would that would appeal to people more on the conservative end talking favorably about HPV vaccine and they did find that it broke down a lot of the resistance people had around this particular vaccine. You see That's that across true. other groups as well like trusted messengers where you have someone who is more culturally connected to a community and not just culturally in a, in a, in a race ethnicity sense, but culturally in terms of their faith or culturally in terms of a subculture. You know, if you got a bunch of motorcycle bikers that are, you know, so there's, there's a lot of research showing positive effects of that trusted messengers um, uh, strategy. But I, I mean, just to follow up with this and maybe Ross get your perspective on this. I mean, and this is sort of bringing it back over into into the weird political shifts that are happening in real time in the United States. Um, I I don't know where you put former President Trump in this, but I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who believe that they can carry the mantle of Trumpism into 2024 who are trying to decide where they put their public health messaging strategy that might be giving them more credit um, than they need. But what's their message going to be? I mean, can a person who wants to be, uh, to win a primary in the Republican party, where should they come down on vaccination or where do you expect them to come down on vaccination? Ross, do you have a, now we're just sort of talking politics here, but I think it's, it's actually pretty relevant. I, I really feel like Indiana was a microcosm of that kind of a discussion over the past year. Our, you know, we have, again, a very heavy red state. We have a Republican governor. We have a supermajority Republican legislature. And it came down to fights between a fairly moderate Republican governor saying, let's follow the science. This will help us keep things open. Um, trying to appeal, like even on issues related to uh, you know, with like church, church attendance, things along, you know, trying to be a storyteller as opposed to, um, uh, you know, trying to make, you know, demands of people. Um, and he's still now in 2021 is getting, you know, the, the backlash that, you know, is, has been, uh, has been severe and swift. Um, it's hard to say, uh, what, uh, other than just to, to really go with the very hard line kind of, you know, to, to borrow the quote from Margaret Thatcher about, you know, there is no society, it's individuals and their families that we really focus on, um, that, uh, and we care for one another through that kind of a, uh, a lens as contrasted with there being these large systemic roles uh, for public health systems, 
to address uh, problems we have in society. I really think that they're going to just try to, uh, you know, elide the entire, uh, you know, a, a discussion into a individual liberty uh, discussion. Wow, that seems like that that's where it's going. And then, but on the other side, and this is the last question we're going to have time for, but um, is once again around trying to uh, sort of connect sort of some broader social issues. So getting back to like what public health could mean. And this is sort of addressing one of the problems around people getting access to vaccination in the United States, which is they can't get time off work to go get vaccinated. And Dorit, you um, were quoted recently, in fact, I think it was yesterday, um, in which you told ABC, there are currently no federal laws that require employers to provide time off, paid or unpaid, in order to get a COVID-19 vaccine. It's one of the gaps in our vaccine access issue. I don't know why anything still surprises me, but I was astounded by that. I guess I was more astounded that there would be employers out there who wouldn't give somebody an hour off to go get vaccinated. But then I realized that that had all kinds of assumptions that I was making about how close pe people were to vaccine centers, how long the lines might be, their own childcare responsibilities, a lot of stuff wrapped up in that. And once you start unwrapping it, you get the whole package of inequality more generally in public health, I think. I, Dorit, I, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on your point yes. there and, and what's necessary to, to change that. So first, this is going back to something I think both Tara and Maya raised, which is we have real access issues, even within countries that are well-resourced and uh, uh, that have access to vaccines. The other part that comes in here is the United States is really bad generally in giving a paid leave to its workers. And that creates many public health problems when people who are sick can't get time off. Um, so... It's part of one of the, I think the pandemic in the United States hasn't created any new injustices, but brought forward a lot of injustices we've had for many years. This is one of them. Uh, people depend on their employer for uh, whether the employer wants or doesn't want to give the time off. Now, I will say that some states have provided for this. So some states have provided paid leave. Uh, and I think the same ABC article mentioned this. California has uh, passed supplemental paid leave that can be used to go get vaccines, uh, and some others have, but we don't have any federal arrangement. And going back to the point that this is politicized and uh, that we have real political uh, differences between states, uh, there are going to be states where the state isn't going to do anything and a lot of employers aren't going to do anything either. As you point out, employers should have an interest here. They don't want the to have to shut down again because of a COVID-19 outbreak. A vaccinated workforce can help them avoid that. Uh, Marketing-wise, they can market themselves as a safer place, uh, but it's going to depend on the individual employer and not all of them are going to come down on the side of giving uh, the leave. We, we, I think we generally have to do better at bringing vaccines to people, at giving them the time to go get the vaccine and bring the vaccines to their neighborhood and to their places for people who, don't, who aren't that mobile, uh, and we're not doing this. Yeah, to, to pick up on, on, on that point, I, mean, if the, you, I, I appreciate you sharing the, the link uh, to the IRS website because in um, you know, in the American Rescue Plan that, that was passed uh, earlier this year, there is now a structure to allow 
employers that are uh, uh, 500 employees or less, plus not-for-profits, even local government uh, to to receive tax credits for offering uh, paid medical leave um, and family leave uh, uh, surrounding issues uh, of COVID vaccination. So not just time off to get the shot, but also time to recover should you happen to have uh, you know, side effects from that. But you know, to, to echo um, Dorit's point, you know, we, we really are in the point now where the ground game is about addressing structural and, and really in many ways racist barriers uh, to access. You know, this is disproportionately now affecting minoritized essential workers, more vulnerable communities. Um, and folks say that if they could get that leave, if they could get that time off, the recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey said uh, those who have been sort of in that wait and see uh, section, uh, three out of 10 of them said that if they could get that time off, they would go and get the vaccine. And I think this is going to be uh, something that will help not just individuals, uh, but families now that it's available to uh, for children to get vaccinated as well. Thank you for that. We're we're out of time. I've kept the panel too long. I know they probably all have um, things they have to get to uh, and appreciate all of the time that they've devoted to this conversation today. Just a, uh, just a quick hit as we go out. Tara, what's the next article about, if you can tell us? And then we'll and then we'll close up for today. Uh, the article that was published today in National Geographic, I wrote about teenagers who may want to get the COVID vaccine, um, but most states do not allow you to get the vaccine without a parent or guardian's uh, uh, consent. Um, they, kids can get some health care without parent or guardian consent, but um, vaccines are not usually a part of that in most states, although it's a patchwork, it varies greatly as, as uh, Dorit and Ross can both attest. And so I wrote about the kids who are in that sort of weird space. They want to get vaccinated. Their parents don't want to. What happens? I didn't even get to all the issues I wanted to. Like, what about the kids who work in, you know, high risk situations or their employers require it? There were a lot of issues that there weren't time to get to. But, um, yeah. All right. We're going to look for that piece. And I want to thank my guests today, Maya Goldenberg, Dorit Reese, Tara Haley and Ross Silverman. Um, for this vaccination roundtable and remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. We'll be talking to uh, journalist Robert Huber, um, who's uh, done some great reporting throughout last year about the pandemic in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania. We're going to talk about Pennsylvania, and we're going to talk about Philadelphia, and we're going to talk about family relationships in the pandemic. So please do join my conversation with Robert Huber. And thanks again to my guests today. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m.